You can open your Bibles with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. And when you find your place, you can stand, as many of you already are, uh, for the reading of God's Word. We know when the Scripture speaks, God speaks, and so we stand out of respect for Him. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, and flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left, and at my left, is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father." And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are amazing. Um, You are the most courageous man that has ever been. You are the God-man. You stooped to earth to ransom your people, to serve your people. God-serving man. What an incredible thought. Lord, let us be struck by it this morning, and may what you have done change us and how we serve one another, and may you be exalted. Give us clarity this morning, give us understanding, change us, we would ask in the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Well, we continue with that theme in this section of Matthew of value inversion, value inversion. We've seen Jesus as he has walked from chapter 19 through uh, all the way to where we are now. Um, He has been walking uh, towards Jerusalem. He's headed there. And yet as he goes, he's encountering uh, different groups. Different people approach him uh, with some sort of request or issue. So we have the Pharisees approach Jesus and ask about marriage and divorce. And he corrects them. He corrects not only them, but he also corrects and teaches the disciples that have imbibed, that have swallowed the same mentality as their culture. And it's the same thing as he goes throughout. We have the rich young man. The rich young man, uh, 
he was, uh, he was focused on self-reliance, on his ability to barter for eternal life. And Jesus not only corrects him, but then he turns to his disciples and corrects them, corrects them and th- is showing that only God, only God through his generosity gives eternal life. It's not about self-reliance, human effort at all. And then we saw last week, uh, kind, of, uh, kind of related to that same episode, but different, we saw Peter ask, well, what's going to be for us? We've done what the rich young ruler didn't do, what you called the rich young ruler uh, um, to do. Uh, we, uh, we've done that, so what's in it for us? And Jesus does affirm, yeah, there's reward. There's reward there. There's not only inheriting eternal life, there's not only entering the kingdom, but there is reward, and yet he corrects Peter's thinking. What was Peter's thinking? Well, let me compare myself with the rich young ruler, or let me compare myself with another disciple, and based on that comparison, that ranking of relative human um, effort, uh, ranking of uh, human worth, and based on that ranking, God's going to reward me. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's not about that. It's not about relative human ranking. It's about working tunnel vision. You work, you labor hard as a Christian, motivated by what? Not ranking yourself with one another, but with looking towards the Father's generosity, looking towards the Father's goodness in reward. And we enter a third, or probably more than that at this point, Another value that Jesus is going to approach. So we've seen marriage and divorce. God values a one-flesh relationship. We've seen dependence, not self-reliance. Dependence like a little child. We've seen, uh, we've seen depending on the Father's goodness for reward, not comparative human effort. And now we're going to talk about greatness. Talk about greatness. And then and now, people want to be Great. Great. How do people want to be great? We, we can look around us and we can see, and you can see it in the same context here, that greatness is normally, in a fallen world, measured by being served. You're great. If you are a great one, you get to be served. And you get to have authority over others. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be great? Now, probably when I ask that question to you all, um, as good Christians and raised in the church, you're like, no, 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 I don't want to be great. Uh, greatness is bad, and uh, I, I don't want to be great. I just want to. Um, I just want a Jesus. I want to be humble. I want to be a servant. And those are right, right mindsets. But what if I told you? that the, the right Christian answer, the right Christian answer is this, right? I shouldn't want to be great. That's essentially what the right Christian answer, the right Christian answer boils down to. I shouldn't want to be great. What if I told you that that's not the right Christian answer? What if I told you that, um, that the Bible and Jesus has nothing against pursuing greatness, but that what that's, what's at issue is how you pursue greatness, and how that greatness is measured. That's really what's at issue this morning. Jesus is going to subvert another cultural value, a cultural value then and a cultural value now, about greatness, and he's going to turn it on its head. He's going to turn it on its head for its, his disciples, and he's going to turn it on its head for us. So the main idea of our text this morning is this. 
Pursue greatness. Do it. Pursue greatness. It is right and it is good to pursue greatness. But pursue greatness in the future kingdom by serving the church like the Son of Man. Pursue greatness in the future kingdom by serving the church like the Son of Man. And what we're going to see in the text as we walk through it is we're going to see three instructions for how to pursue greatness in the kingdom. Three instructions. And so first, what we look at is in verses 17 through 19, and the first step, the first instruction for how to pursue greatness is to listen, to listen to Jesus' plan of service. Listen to Jesus' plan of service. Look at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, now that's a geographic marker. We've seen multiple of those. Um, they're helpful in this section because remember what we said, Jesus' ministry by and large has been up in Galilee. That's where they've spent their time. But most recently, he's come down from Galilee and he is headed to Jerusalem. And he's been in the area of Judea. He's actually been on the eastern side of the Jordan, it seems like. We're going to see him fairly soon go through Jericho. Um, so, but he's headed towards Jerusalem. That's been his itinerary. It's been his itinerary basically since chapter 16, verse 21, right after G um, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, he's been headed towards Jerusalem. So he's still on the way. And as they're on the way, uh, as he was, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. Um, he huddles them. You can kind of imagine that. He huddles the 12. And on the way, so it's like he takes them off to the side of the road and he says, all right, we, group huddle guys, we need to talk. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, this is a prediction of what's going to happen in Jerusalem, but it's not the first one. It's not the first one. Go back to chapter 16. You can kind of compare and contrast where Jesus has explicitly told his disciples that he's headed towards this end. So remember, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, and immediately after that, well, first he tells them, don't tell anyone who I am, and we're like, well, why not? And really, uh, a large measure, what we said is, is because they don't have the right conception of what it means to be the Christ. But immediately after that, Jesus begins his prediction of him going to Jerusalem to suffer, and that's part of what he is teaching them. Here's part, a key part, of what it means to be the Christ, the ultimate Davidic king who will rule over Israel and the nations. Look at verse, chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, from the time that... Uh, Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He did it again. Uh, that was way far north, way far north of Galilee and Caesarea Philippi. They moved down to Galilee, they moved down to Galilee, probably to Capernaum, and we get another one in 1722 and 23. 1722, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. 
So whenever you got a repetition like that in the narrative, you're, you're kind of invited to compare and contrast what's happening. Notice each time, including the time we're reading this morning, that Jesus makes this prediction, uh, he predicts essentially being handed over to uh, people of some sort or another, suffering, dying, but always at the end, it's to be raised on the third day. But you will notice in the section this morning, in verses 17 through 19, or particularly 18 through 19, where Jesus is telling them this, it's the most detailed it's been. It's the most detailed. Look at, look at the sequence here. Verse 18, chapter 20. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. The idea is he's going to be handed over. He's going to be handed over. It doesn't explain who, who's going to do that, but it does explain that the Son of Man is Jesus. He's referring to himself as the Son of Man. He's going to be handed over to the custody of the chief priests and the scribes. Now, the chief priests and the scribes are those who are in charge of the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, the religious authorities connected with the temple. They are the ones that have kind of authority in Jerusalem. So he's the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They're the ones who get to judge religious matters, Jewish matters. They have a level of jurisdiction even under Rome. And so they're going to, the result of him being handed over to this leadership, this temple leadership, is they are going to sentence him to death. But the issue is, at this time, Rome is the one in charge. So Rome grants a little bit of autonomy to Israel and to the religious leaders, but you couldn't, at this time, the Jews did not have the ability to mete out capital punishment. They could not execute people. They had to ask Rome's permission. And so it kind of makes sense. In a sense, if, if you hear that someone sentenced something to death, someone to death, you would expect, oh, the execution's coming next. But that's not what happens next. What happens next is, verse 19, he's now going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, to the nations. But specifically, and in the context, it makes sense that he's referring to the Romans. Rome is in charge. They have jurisdiction. Uh, they're the ones that can have to... Uh, uh, to approve capital punishment and the execution. So kind of strangely, it's like, well, okay, he's handed over to the Jews, and then he's handed over from the Jews to the nations, to Rome. And then what's the result of that going to be? Mocking, flogging, and crucifixion. We've talked about crucifixion a lot. It is a Roman punishment, not a Jewish punishment. It is a Roman punishment. It is designed to be maximally shameful, and maximally painful. We've talked a lot about crucifixion. You know, normally, uh, the one who's sentenced, they, they carry their crossbar, the crossbar of the cross, um, of the T uh, that makes the cross through town. They would often wear a placard describing the, their, their crime on the front. And normally, it was slaves and barbarians, uh, the lowest of the low that get crucified, state criminals, state rebels, not a Roman citizen. And you notice this is the first time Jesus explicitly mentions crucifixion. The other times it's been kind of general, like he's going to be handed over, there's going to be suffering, he's going to die. But now it's very, very, very explicit. 
It's very, very detailed. It matches exactly what's going to happen. And we understand that because Jesus is the God-man. He knows what's going to happen. This has been his mission. He knows he's headed here. But don't stop at the crucifixion. It ends the same way as the rest. And he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus lays out his itinerary. It's the same. It's the most detailed it's been, but it's the same thing that he's been saying since chapter 16. He's done this. He's, as he's moved from Galilee down to Judea, heading to Jerusalem, he knows this is what he's heading towards. Now, the question is, why does he keep taking the disciples aside and telling them this? Now, they're not happy about it. Uh, chapter 16, after Jesus says, uh, makes his prediction in verse 21, what happens next? Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him, right? Because Peter doesn't have a place in his mind for a suffering Messiah. The Messiah is going to be the king. He's going to kick out the Romans. He's going to rule over Israel and the nations. What's this deal about suffering? What are you saying, Jesus? Or even in chapter 17, when he makes his prediction, how does it end? The disciples are greatly disturbed. The idea of a suffering Messiah, not an exalted Messiah, is greatly disturbing to them. And it doesn't record their response here, but we understand that's been their response. Why is that? Well, like I said, they have this conception of what the Messiah is going to be and do, and they don't want to hear Jesus talk about suffering. Why does Jesus keep bringing it up? Well, he's teaching them. He's teaching them, here's what it means to be the Christ. Here's what it means to be the Christ. Jesus never denies that being the Christ is going to lead to exaltation and ruling over all the world. In fact, in chapter 19, verse 28, last week, he talks about how the Son of Man, that individual from Daniel 7, he's going to be on a throne of glory. And Daniel 7 says that he's going to be on a throne of glory over all the nations, and he's going to be served by all the nations. That's what Daniel 7 says. So Jesus knows that he's going to be exalted, but he is filling his disciples in. But there's this huge component of what's the path to get there? What's the path to get there? And part of the path to get there, the, part of the essential function of the Christ is doing what Jesus is doing in suffering and dying and rising again. And really, he's setting them up. He's setting them up. Um, He's setting them up so that when it happens, when it happens, he's already told them ahead of time, so that when it happens, they will believe and understand that this is a key reality of what it means to be the Christ. So he's priming them such that when it all unfolds, they have a hard enough time without, they have a hard enough time when Jesus dies and raises again to still bring this conception to bear of the Christ being a sufferer. They have a hard enough time. Well, imagine how hard it would be if Jesus hadn't primed them and he's priming them so that they might believe and understand that this itinerary of suffering and death and resurrection is the key reality of what it means to be the Christ. Now, how do we apply this? We've said that this, I'm kind of listing this under one of the instructions for pursuing greatness. Listen to Jesus' plan of service. This is his plan of service. This is his plan. And what we need to do first is just see who Jesus is. That's part of what we're supposed to do in the Gospels. We're supposed to see who Jesus is, what he does, how he acts, and we're supposed to marvel. So here, what are we supposed to marvel at? We're supposed to see his plan, 
but then marvel at the courage and humility of Jesus walking into horrific suffering waiting for him in Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. He knows completely what's coming. But he's, he's got a single focus going towards Jerusalem. Nothing's going to dissuade him. Nothing's going to pull him aside. He knows what's waiting for him, and he marches on into Jerusalem. And from a human perspective, from a human values perspective, this is foolish. If you know suffering is coming, if you know hardship is coming, you take the path of least resistance. You take the path that's easier. Can I avoid this? Can I avoid suffering? Can I avoid ridicule? Can I avoid these things? And Jesus doesn't seek to avoid it at all. He marches right into it, one step after another. From a human perspective, this seems foolish. It flies in the face of human values. But through what Jesus is going to do, he shows the wisdom of God. Now, Jesus, Jesus doesn't explain why. He, hasn't, he just said he's going to suffer and die and rise again. But there's no explanation as to why this is going to happen. But he is going to answer that question by the time we get to verse 28. Even before he heads to suffering. But part of the setup for what we're going to talk about of pursuing greatness and what Jesus is going to tell his disciples about how to pursue greatness, this is the setup. You need this backdrop to see Jesus' plan of service to be able to understand what he says in the next couple sections. So first, we've seen we need to listen to Jesus' plan of service. If you want to pursue greatness, you got to start with listening and seeing Jesus' plan of service. But next, here's our next instruction, your next instruction for pursuing greatness in the future kingdom. Plan for suffering, submitting to the Father's preparations. Plan for suffering, submitting to the Father's preparations. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him. Now, this is language that we've seen a bunch in this Slack section, right? Someone comes up to Jesus. So the Pharisees come up to Jesus. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the rich young guy comes up to Jesus. And then there's this dialogue that happens, there's some correction that happens, and then there's some uh, teaching to the disciples. Now, this is kind of interesting, isn't it? That the, uh, why, why is the mother of the sons of Zebedee there? Isn't that kind of an interesting question? Um, because you know, um, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee are James and John. Uh, Jesus called them in chapter 4. They're among the first disciples called uh, to follow Jesus. But he calls them in Galilee. Uh, that's their home base. That's where they live. They live way north in Galilee. And Jesus has moved down from Galilee to Jerusalem. And yes, he's taken the 12. He's taken the disciples. But why is Mrs. Zebedee coming along? Why is it Mrs. Zebedee there? Now, what's interesting, you might chuckle a little bit, but we actually get an answer to that a little bit later. You can thumb over to Matthew 27, actually at the cross. But Matthew 27, verses 55 and 56, listen to this. So this is at the cross, okay? Jesus hanging on the cross, 2755, there... There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. 
among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So why is this gal coming along? Well, she evidently, effectively, she's a disciple. She is, sees who Jesus is. She's serving him, ministering in some capacity. It's not spelled out uh, what exactly that is. But she's following along with the twelve, and she's ministering to Jesus. And so she's there. She's there. So she believes who Jesus is, at least to an extent, has some conception of his greatness, of being the Messiah, right? The, the disciples recognize that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And so evidently, she's following along. She does too, even in her actions and how she approaches Jesus. So the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, let's think about James and John for a second, the sons of Zebedee. We saw them called in chapter 4. But the sons of Zebedee um, have had a prominent place. Now, if you think about a disciple who has a prominent place, we often think of Peter, and that's true. However, if you look back at chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration where he unveils his heavenly glory a little bit, to, um, uh, uh, removes the disguise, so to speak, for a second. But who does he bring with him? He brings Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So these guys are kind of part of the inner circle, the inner three. Uh, Jesus has already favored them with the, even the ability. They're going to be witnesses. They, you remember, they go up, they see Jesus' glory, and they come down. He says, wait until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead to share this. So they, these guys have a lot of privilege that Jesus has given to them. Not all the twelve got this. Peter and James and John have had favor from Jesus. Great honor amongst the twelve so far. So what, what happens? Verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, came up to Jesus with her sons, so all three of them, and kneeling before him, so the mother kneels before him, and she asks him for something. Doesn't explain what she's going to ask for, that'll come in a second, but she's probably just saying, hey, I would like to ask and request of you something. Verse 21, and he said, we're what do you want? What do you want? She said to him, and the way this is framed, uh, it is marked in the original as being surprising. What she asked for is surprising. She is saying to him, say, speak, give a promise is the idea. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, what is she asking for? Remember the context of what we saw last week. Remember Peter asked, well, what are we going to get? And, uh, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He said, here's what you're going to get. The twelve are going to get to sit on twelve thrones uh, when the Son of Man, when I sit on my throne of glory in the future kingdom, in the renewal, in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, you're, you're gonna, the, you, the twelve, are going to sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So already the twelve have been promised a great deal of prominence. So what's being asked here? It's building on that. It's building on that reality and what Jesus has already declared in chapter 19, verse 28. It's building on that. And what is being asked here is for rank two and rank three in the kingdom. Jesus is the king. He sits on his throne of glory. The 12 are near him, sitting on their thrones, 
what are James and John asking for? Rank two and rank three. Actually, their, their mom is asking for rank two and rank three on their behalf. Now, why is Mrs. Zebedee asking this? Why is Mrs. Zebedee asking this? Because we're going to find out in a second that James and John want this. They're the ones really asking this. But Mrs. Zebedee asks on behalf of her sons. Why is that? Now, you know, we kind of chuckle a little bit and say, oh, James and John, they're mama's boys, and uh, they want their mom to, their mommy to do the dirty work for them, you know. And that's not, I don't think that's really what's going on here, because in, in that culture, uh, it's what's called an honor-shame culture. And we kind of understand this a little bit, but we are not an honor-shame culture by and large in the United States. But the idea is, with honor and shame, is that when someone in the family gets honor, the whole family gets honor. So when someone in the family gets honor, the whole family gets honor. So you've got Mrs. Zebedee asking this now, and uh, she's asking for her sons. And of course, she wants something good for them. But when they get honor, the whole Zebedee family gets honor. And what greater honor could you have than imagine that? I mean, sitting right next to Jesus and his right hand and his left in the future kingdom. Just imagine that for a second. That is amazing. That would be astounding. That would be great. Like, I would love that. That's not, that's not for me, but it would be amazing. That would be so cool. But um, she's asking because if her sons are honored, then the whole family is honored. But even a little bit more to it than that. Um, you see, in the scriptures, you will notice oftentimes that uh, women uh, have a great deal of sway over rulers. Uh, that um, gals will come along, whether it's a mom or someone else, and they will appeal on behalf of a ruler for something. And the general tone is that they, uh, they bend the ear of the ruler. They bend the ear of the ruler. They have a great persuasion. And that seems to be some of what's happening here as well. She's asking. She's asking on behalf of her sons for rank two and rank three in the kingdom. They know they're going to be on the 12 thrones next to the Son of Man sitting on his throne in the future kingdom. They want rank two and rank three. And already there's, there's some warrant for this because Jesus only took Peter and James and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration to see Jesus' glory. So this is, in some sense, not an unreasonable request, and yet the timing is horrible. It's terrible. I think this is part of the reason her speech is marked, her request is marked. Jesus just talked about suffering and dying, being mocked, flogged, crucified. And um, yes, there is the bit about the resurrection, and, but the timing is terrible. Timing is terrible. It just seems so insensitive. Regardless, so what are they thinking? Well, at the very least, they're thinking there's going to be some sort of showdown in Jerusalem. And yeah, maybe there's going to be some suffering. They don't deny that Jesus is going to suffer. In fact, he's going to allude to it here in a second. They have recognized that. But they just kind of think that, well, maybe the resurrection thing, it's all going to work out and the kingdom's still going to come. And it's going to come soon. So we better, before this showdown happens, before the kingdom comes soon, we better, you know, try to get, um, you know, a promise for our ranks before the kingdom gets established. But still, it's insensitive. It's bad timing. How does Jesus respond. What are, they seeking? what are they seeking? They're seeking rank. They're seeking privilege. They're seeking greatness. They're seeking greatness in the kingdom. And no doubt to whoever those thrones would go to, that is a great and awesome position and desirable. What does he say? Verse 23, uh, excuse me, verse 22, 
Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Now, what does he mean by that? You don't know what you're asking for. Um, Certainly they know they're asking for great prominence and great honor, but the magnitude of the request is huge, right? It's like a little kid coming and um, asking, um, Daddy, will you buy me a car? You know, five-year-old kid, like, um, uh, Daddy, will you buy me a car? You don't know what you're asking, son. (laughs) Um, It's that, there's some of that, there's some of that that's just a naive request. You don't know what you're asking for. Yet, what does Jesus go to? He doesn't just say, you don't know what you're asking for. Be quiet, get back in line, let's keep going towards Jerusalem. He doesn't do that. What does he do to kind of unfold what he means by saying, "You you don't know what you're asking? Look what he says next. Are you able to drink the cup which I am going to drink? Now, what does he mean by that? Um, The cup uh, in the Old Testament, there's this motif in the Old Testament, this repeated pattern and description of drinking a cup of suffering, drinking a cup of judgment. Um, And that's what Jesus is alluding to here. So what Jesus is alluding to here when he talks about drinking the cup that, you know, I'm going to drink this cup, he's alluding to what he just said in uh, verses 18 through 19. You're going to drink this cup, or he's going to drink this cup of suffering. And so he asks, you don't know what you're asking, but then he goes right into saying, are you able to drink the cup which I'm about to drink? Now, this is very interesting. Like, why does he say that? He doesn't just outright deny their request or even their pursuit of greatness. What he goes to is, you don't know what you're asking, meaning you don't know what it entails. If you want high position and rank in the kingdom, the future kingdom on the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus is going to reign over, well, effectively what he's saying is you've got to be able to drink a cup of suffering. Think about how this works. Who has the highest rank in the kingdom? Well, Jesus does. He's the king. He's the son of man, who's described in seven, uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. He has the highest rank, but what's the path to get there? Drinking a very deep and bitter cup of suffering. And what is Jesus saying? He's like, you don't know what you're asking. You're asking for rank two and rank three, but if you're going to get to rank two and rank three, you've got to be able to drink the same manner of suffering that I'm going to drink. Now, it's not like they're saying um, uh, the exact same type of suffering, but kind of the same manner. The, the great suffering that the Son of Man is going to go through, and he's going to have the highest rank in the future kingdom. You, if you want rank two and rank three, you've got to be able to drink the same cup. Are you able are you able to do this? How do they respond? And their response is marked as surprising in the original. We are able. Now, again, this is just, we got to be careful because we could just say, well, this is just totally naive. And it is. You know, it's, it's still that self-reliance. It's a self-reliance that we're going to see Peter do. Even if everyone denies you, I will not. That kind of self-reliance, I can do it, I can muscle my way through this, I can make it happen. So it is that, 
But, you know, they're not denying that they're suffering. I mean, Jesus has spoken at length in this gospel about if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to give up a lot. You're going to have to suffer because uh, the Messiah is going to suffer, because people are going to hate you on behalf of the name of me. And so they recognize there's some measure of suffering coming, and they're dedicated to Jesus. They, they, um, they're dedicated, they're devoted um, they believe in his kingdom, they believe in his exaltation, and so they said, we're able. Which, yes, it's naive, we understand that. And, you know, again, you would think, well, Jesus is just going to say, you don't know what you're talking about, guys. <laughs> but what does he say? It's really interesting. And now, Jesus' response is marked as surprising. You will indeed drink my cup. Isn't that interesting? It's not just, all right, uh, you guys are t- totally out to lunch, just uh, you're thinking all wrong. Jesus is saying, all right, well, if you want to pursue greatness, uh, you got to be able to drink my cup. Not the exact same cup, but the same basic manner of suffering that I'm going to go through. And they say, well, okay, we're able. And he's like, all right, you're going to get what you asked for. You will indeed drink my cup. And as we see even the New Testament unfold, it's true. James gets martyred in Acts 12 by the sword on behalf of the name of Jesus from King Herod. He gets martyred. Uh, John, John lives the longest of the apostles. Uh, and you see in Revelation 1 how he talks about being a fellow partaker in the sufferings uh, of, of the tribulation that's happening on the whole world. And even church... Uh, church uh, a tradition indicates that um, John was like boiled in oil by an emperor. You know, so, you know, and it's tradition, so it's like, is it, we're not 100% sure, but regardless, we do know that he suffered. It seems like John wasn't martyred. He lived out and died in, uh, you know, of old age, but he suffered. Both James and John suffered. They drank the same kind of cup on behalf of their Lord. But what does Jesus say? You're going to drink my cup, but to sit to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to give. Which is also interesting, because who's the king? Jesus is the king. So if Jesus is the king, you think he gets to dispose of uh, you know, the ranks in the kingdom. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, it's not mine to give. So even if you go through the prerequisite, so the prerequisite for greatness in the kingdom is suffering. The prerequisite for great status in the kingdom is suffering on behalf of the Messiah. But even if you go through that, and Jesus does affirm that they're going to go through that, that's not enough. That's not determinative. What is determinative? It's the Father's preparation but it is to those, it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. That's where the, all the weight f- falls in this verse. All the weight falls on that, that, that statement. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Meaning what? The Father is the one who grants status in the kingdom. Even in the case of Jesus. So remember Daniel 7, we read it last week. What happens? The Ancient of Days comes, and thrones are set up, 
And then what? The Son of Man comes. I think the Ancient of Days is setting up his throne on earth. And the, uh, the, the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days on earth. And then the Ancient of Days hands over the kingdom to the Son of Man. So who's disposing of, who's orchestrating, who's ordering the kingdom? The Ancient of Days, the Father. So even with regard to Jesus' position, the Father establishes that. He's prepared that based on Jesus' mission, his suffering, and the Father has prepared that. He has generously prepared that for the Son based on his goodness, based on the goodness of the Son. But here Jesus is saying, it's uh, the rank two and rank three, it's not mine to grant, it's from the Father's preparation. It's for whom the Father has prepared. Meaning what? God's going to orchestrate who's going to sit where in the kingdom in terms of rank and status and privilege. But really, this idea of preparation goes back to what we were talking about last week. Parable of the workers in the vineyard. The last shall be first and the first last. Remember how we talked about the motivation. Where rewards come from in the kingdom is not your relative ranking with a fellow disciple or some other human on earth not based on that. It's based solely on God's generosity and goodness, which is a better measuring stick. It's a better measuring stick. You know, I think I heard someone last week asking, well, I feel demotivated to, to work hard now, you know, for Christ's kingdom because, you know, it's, it's um, you know, uh, the Father's generous and he's just going to distribute however he wants. Well, no, the idea in the parable of the workers of the vineyard is God is greatly generous. Those last workers that didn't have a contract, God gave abundantly. God gave the hourly rate of the hourly rate as the hiring goes on throughout the day, the hourly rate gets higher and higher and higher till the end of the hour of the day. The last hour of the day gets the higher, highest hourly rate based on what? God's goodness and his generosity. And what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, guys, uh, if you want to have great status in the kingdom, you got to plan on some suffering. But even that's not enough. Ultimately, it's not about the ranking game. It's about looking to the Father's preparation, the Father's goodness, the Father's generosity. So if you want to pursue greatness in the kingdom, you want to pursue greatness, plan for suffering, submitting to the Father's preparation, submitting to the Father's generosity and goodness. And look at how the ten respond to this, verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, what is this? Uh, being indignant is you're angry. You're angry because uh, they asked something that they just think is totally wrong. And they don't think it's wrong because it's wrong to ask. They think it's wrong because they didn't ask for it. It's like sibling rivalry anger, right? Ah, they asked for it, and we didn't. And they think they're better than us. But you see what's going on there. Human ranking, Right? They're still operating by comparing themselves with one another, not just the two, but also the ten. They're still playing the comparison game with one another and saying, well, based on our comparison with one another, that's how God's going to rank us when they haven't learned that lesson yet of it's God's generosity to give you a reward in that kingdom. So how do we apply this section, this, this idea of planning for suffering but submitting to the Father's preparations? Well, here's kind of we go back to where we started. It is not wrong to pursue greatness. 
It's not wrong to pursue greatness in the kingdom. Jesus never rebukes them for pursuing this. What does he do? He says, if you're going to pursue greatness, you've got to follow the path that the Father has laid out for it. The path for Jesus is suffering. The path for his followers is suffering. So if you want to pursue greatness, do it. Pursue greatness in the future kingdom. That greatness is not going to be manifested now. It's going to be manifested in the future kingdom when Jesus rules and reigns. But plan for suffering because you follow Jesus. Not just suffering in general, suffering for the sake of following Jesus. But even within that, even if you suffer greatly for the sake of Jesus, depend on the Father's good and generous reward in the kingdom, not rivalry with fellow disciples. Not a greatness based on human effort or ranking. It is based on God's generosity. So if you want to pursue greatness in the future kingdom, listen to Jesus' plan of service, plan for suffering, submitting to the Father's preparation, and then thirdly, third instruction for pursuing greatness, serve the church like the Son of Man. Serve the church like the Son of Man. Look at verse 25. So where do we leave everything? There is kind of, there's friction based on, Jesus, uh, based on James and John and Mrs. Zebedee's request. Um, there's an uproar in the disciples. They're miffed at each other. They're angry at each other. And Jesus is like, all right, time for another huddle. Um, verse 25, Jesus called them to him and said, he's got to fix this, right? Because they're still operating on that principle of let's compare ourselves to one another and rank ourselves with one another for the sake of greatness. And Jesus has been working hard. Chapter 18 uh, parable of the workers in the vineyard, he's working hard to deprogram them from thinking this way. Verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles have lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, what is Jesus saying? He's appealing to common knowledge, so the disciples are men of the world. They know how the world works, and it's the same thing for us. We can look at the world, and we can look at human leadership in government, etc., and how does it work? It works like this. The rulers of the nations have mastery over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. Now, notice what Jesus is not doing. He is not saying one way or the other that this is an abuse of authority. It doesn't seem like the verbs that are used here are emphasizing abuse of authority. He's just saying the reality is in the world, you have a top-down style of authority structure. We get this, right? Uh, even in a democratic um, government, right? Uh, there is a top-down authority structure. So the person on top... Uh, gives commands to the person below, and they're supposed to serve and obey and listen. Um, it's, a, it's an authority structure, a top-down authority structure is a structure that focuses on status and preeminence and the right to command those under them. That's how top-down authority structures work. And Jesus is saying, you guys know this. This happens in the world. We know this. We look at things, and we can see that it's top-down. Leaders, those who are great or considered great, their greatness is measured by being able to give commands and have status over those below them. That's how it works. 
And that's essentially what James and John were thinking about. We want rank two and rank three in the kingdom, and I would like to have that position over my fellow disciples. And so Jesus says, you know that that's how it works in the world, but verse 26, it will not be this way among you. It's not going to work this way. It's not going to work top down among you. Well, how's it going to work? But whoever wants to be, whoever wants among you to be great will be your servant. Now, does Jesus say you shouldn't want to be great? No, in fact, he says the exact opposite. You want to be great? Here's how it works. Here's how it works from God's perspective and how it's going to work in the future kingdom. Whoever wants among you to be great will be, and this is the kind of will be like thou shalt, like this is, a, this is, a, this is a basically an imperative. So if you want to be great, it's not wrong to be great, want to be great, but if you want to be great in God's eyes, what's that going to look like? Whoever wants among you to be great will be your servant. Now, this word here for servant is the word diakonos, which should sound familiar because it sounds like deacon, which is where we get the, where we get the word deacon from this word diakonos. But the idea of a diakonos is one who is an attendant for you know, some king or some, someone uh, the, the diakonos serves. It focuses, this word kind of focuses on the action of serving. So, you know, you're a king or a ruler or have some authority, and you have an attendant. You have someone that's going to run errands for you. You have someone who's going to do your bidding. That's the idea of a diakonos, whatever that looks like. So we could say service. Whoever wants to be great with you uh, will be your servant. Now, follow this here. Who is the servant serving? He's not serving Jesus, he's serving the you, which is a plural you in the original. This is where our English language is difficult because we have to say y'all if we want to do that, right? Whoever wants among you, among you disciples, whoever wants among you disciples to be great, well, you're going to be the servant of the disciples. You're going to be at the disposal of the disciples, you're going to be laboring as an attendant for the disciples. And then Jesus carries it further, verse 27, and whoever wants to be first. You see that, uh, notice how he talked about the, 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 the rulers of the world. The, the rulers of the nations uh, uh, have mastery over them, and the great ones have authority. And now Jesus reverses the order. Do you see that? In verse 26, he says, well, if you want to be great, if someone wants to be great among you, they'll be your servant and now, whoever wants to be first among you, have the first rank, will be your slave. This is the word doulos. It is a slave. It is someone who is owned by another. And yes, they're going to carry out a lot of the same functions as a diakonos. They may even, they overlap, so those two words overlap. But diakonos focuses on the idea of serving, the action of serving. Here, a doulos, yes, a doulos is going to serve, but the doulos has what? Lowest rank. Lowest on the totem pole. They belong to a master. Now, notice, who does the doulos, who does the slave belong to? Whoever wants to be 
among you first will be your, plural, referring to the disciples, slave. This is bottom-up authority structure. Jesus is saying, you want to be great, you want to have rank, you want to have position, where? In the future kingdom, then what is it going to look like now? It's going to look like now you serving the disciples. You being at the disposal of the disciples. You slaving for the disciples. For the church. You're like, really? Well, Jesus helps us out here because he backs up what he just said with verse 28. Just like. So now Jesus is drawing a comparison. That, that, that instruction I just gave you, it's just like this. It's just like the Son of Man. Just like the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Now, what's interesting here, those two words for serve right there, they're a verb, but they're like the verbal form of diakonos. So he's alluding back to what he just said. The Son of Man came not to be served, to have attendance attending him as the king, although he has that right, but what? To serve. And to give his life as a ransom in behalf of many. Now, this is very fascinating because Jesus uses the title Son of Man. And we've seen when Jesus uses the title Son of Man, he's thinking of Daniel 7. Go back to Daniel 7 briefly. Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. They're the kind of the pinnacle. So the Ancient of Days has set up thrones. He's there. Um, God is there. Uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And catch this. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man, the destiny of the Son of Man is to be served. The destiny in the kingdom, in the new heavens and the new earth, of the Son of Man is to be served. He will be served. When is that greatness and that status going to be manifested? In the future. But in Jesus' first coming, in the coming of the Son of Man first, as he is, as Jesus of Nazareth, as we see him here in the text, he came not, first time he didn't come, to be served, but to serve. So now Jesus is elaborating on his whole mission. Why did he come? If he's not coming to take up the reign of the Son of Man yet, why did he come? He came to serve. Not to be served yet, he will be served in the future, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is a ransom? A ransom is an amount that gets paid to release someone else from captivity. A ransom is something that gets paid to release someone else from captivity. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give my life as a ransom in behalf, not just of one person, but of many. 
And this language here at the end brings up another Old Testament passage. It's really interesting. He's alluding to Daniel 7, and he's also alluding to another Old Testament passage where there is a suffering servant. Turn to Isaiah 52. We know this passage, or if you don't know it, you should become intimately acquainted with it because it lays out the mission of the ultimate Davidic king 700 years before it happens. And Jesus in this, in Matthew, and, and Matthew has already alluded to Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, but Jesus is here alluding to it. Let me read a few, uh, a few verses from this section. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold... So this is God speaking. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That sounds like Daniel 7 a little bit, doesn't it? As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle, which is a way of talking in the Old Testament, you sprinkle someone clean so that they're holy and can approach God. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. And then Isaiah 53 basically walks through. This servant comes, he has no outward manifestation of glory or exaltation, but we already know that that's God's plan for him. Verse 12, uh, or verse 13 in chapter 52. And so then the rest of the chapter unfolds, what is this suffering servant going to do? Well, he's going to suffer in behalf of many to do what? To appease God's wrath for their sin, to be a substitute, or to use another term like Matthew and Jesus do, a ransom to be a substitute for the many, to pay the price of God's justice in behalf of those who would otherwise have to pay it. But the reality of sin is that sin is an infinite offense. Even the smallest sin you can think of is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God and deserving of infinite justice. So it is an infinite price to pay. So if you're going to pay it, you're going to spend an eternity under God's just wrath because you have offended the infinite weight of his dignity. The only way around this is is if you have a substitute who is infinitely worthy and can pay that price in your behalf, which is the Son of Man, who is both God and man, who can substitute in behalf of sinners like you and like me, and that's been the project since the beginning of Matthew. What does Matthew one twenty one say? You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people, the many, from their sins. But notice the context in which Jesus is using this. He's saying, I came not to be served, but to serve. To be that suffering servant on behalf of many. Does he deny that he's going to be exalted? No, he is going to be exalted. He's used the title of the Son of Man. He's going to be exalted as the Son of Man, but the road to greatness lies through suffering, and it lies through service. And Jesus is effectively using this in verse 28 to say, I told you if you want to be great, you got to serve the disciples. you got to serve the church. If you want to be the first, got to be the slave of the disciples. you got to be the slave of the church. Because that's what Jesus did. 
Jesus became a slave, the lowest of the low, to go through the most humiliating death imaginable to serve his people, to do the hardest, most gruesome, most difficult amount of service that could possibly be imagined for the sake of the church, for the sake of his people. And how is that going to work out for Jesus? Well, he has, even as Isaiah 53 says, he's, uh, even after death, he's going to see light. He's going to uh, divide the spoil with the many. So greatness is coming for Christ, sitting on the throne in a renewed creation over the earth, but he will spread those spoils with a people. But what's the path? The path is service. Service for the disciples. So what do we do with this? First, Jesus has now explained to his disciples what his purpose is in coming. He talked about the suffering. He talked about it in verses 18 and 19 of this chapter. But that was just, oh, he's going to suffer. But why? Now we know. Now we know. To be a ransom on behalf of many. To be a ransom on those who would place their, who repent and place their trust in him, swearing allegiance to him as king, bowing the knee. Jesus is clear about the purpose of his first coming, to deal with his people's sin as the suffering servant, such that they could draw near to God. Can't draw near to God with sin, but Jesus, as the infinitely worthy Son of Man and Son of God, can pay that price, be resurrected, and can spread the spoils with his people, those who repent and place their faith in him. That's what he did. And he served you. If you are in Christ, if you place your faith in Christ, he served you. He was at your disposal before you even existed. He served you in the most intimate, lowly way that he could. And if you're refusing this morning to bow the knee, that is the most despicable thing you could do. To someone to serve you, at the, most, the, uh, the uttermost degree, and to not bow the knee because you're proud, because you want to be your little king of a pitiful little kingdom, that is ridiculous. And you need to repent and not experience the wrath of the king. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, Psalm 2. But he served not only you if you were in Christ, if you've repented and placed your faith in Christ, he served the many. He served the church. He ransomed a people for himself as his bride to be his people. It's amazing to me how many Christians hate the church. Isn't that true? Even, of course, the, the world's going to hate the church. We expect that. But Christians hate the church. They despise the church. Jesus loves the church and serves the church. Of course he knows it's broken. Of course he knows it's a filthy bride. But he served her and has loved her. Her, and you are unwilling to do what the Son of Man did to serve and love his church? That's what he is holding out. The gospel motivates service to the church because he served you and he served the many, so all, you also serve the many. Jesus' service and how his greatness will be displayed in the kingdom should be your motivation and model for pursuing greatness in the kingdom. Pursue greatness! Do it! 
It's right and good to pursue greatness, but do it in the way that Jesus does. Jesus doesn't say pursuing greatness is wrong, but it does not happen the way humans pursue greatness. Not top-down, but bottom-up. Not taking, not exercising authority over to take from those below you to elevate yourself, but instead to be under those and to give and to serve for their benefit and for their good. Serve and be the slave of the church if you want to be great in the kingdom. And here's the reality. It's amazing how many people in Faith Bible Church serve. And they serve hard. And they serve long. And they are persistent. I just think of the music team. Every week, same people working hard to do songs, to lead us in worship. And they are serving us to help us worship the Lord. And there are people that take meals to others who have just had a baby or in the hospital or having some, some sort of difficulty in life. But, but here's what service in the church is all oriented around. It is the tangible acts of service to one another. But ultimately, all service in the church boils down to this, to helping one another to follow and love Jesus Christ. So whether you're taking a meal, which is very practical, whether you're serving on the worship team, whether you're preaching, whether you're whatever that looks like, what is it all oriented around? To help the many to follow and love Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think of serving uh, in the church as, like, I got to serve in a ministry. I got to serve in a, um, a formal kind of ministry. So if you're going to serve in the church, you're going to serve on the tech team, or you're going to serve on the music team, or you're going to uh, you know, do something else along those lines. I'm going to serve in the nursery, or I'm going to serve in Sunday school, or whatever that might be. But but serving is very organic. It's very organic. Basically, you're at the disposal of your brothers and sisters of Christ of Faith Bible Church. Are you at their disposal? Are you serving the church? What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. At a basic level, it looks like knowing and being known by those in the church. You can't serve those you don't know. You've got to know and be known in the church. It means committing to them in membership. Membership is an act of service where you're saying, I'm submitting to you, church. I want you to affirm me as a disciple, but I also want to be in the boat. I want to be in the boat of serving you as the church. Serving looks like being involved in discipleship groups so that you can know and be known, so that you can pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Serving looks like being involved in prayer for the church. Praying is serving because you're interceding on your brothers and sisters' behalf in prayer. And I know many of you pray either at home or you come to the prayer gatherings that we have on Sunday nights or others as well. Essentially, you can serve just by engaging with others, seeking to help them know and follow Jesus Christ. You can serve them tangibly and you ought to serve them tangibly, like we've said, but, but it's helping one another, knowing and being known, helping one another to follow Jesus Christ. Now, I will say we do have tangible needs here at Faith Bible Church. We have needs for the music team. We have needs for taking meals. We have needs for the church building and grounds. We have need for many different things. <clears throat> But what's it all motivated by? What's it all geared for? Because we love Christ, because Christ has served the church and loved us, we love others and we serve others. We take initiative. Servants take initiative. 
Don't just wait to be told, but say, well, I see a need. Let me see if I can meet that. How can I help my brother or sister follow Jesus? And here's the reality. You cannot fulfill what Jesus is saying and be an isolated Christian. It doesn't work that way. You know, you may have a lot of knowledge. It's very easy to know a lot of stuff and be off by yourself reading books. I mean, that's my proclivity. I mean, I would love to just sit and read books all day and just be off by myself and not interact with anyone. I mean, that's just my, my bent as a person. But that would be worthless. I could know all the stuff but if I'm not serving others with it, if I'm not knowing and being known, if I'm not engaging and loving, it, it doesn't mean anything. You can't fulfill service and be an isolated Christian. you got to be engaged. Because that's what Jesus did. And if you serve in this way, you pour yourself out for the church, you pour yourself out for Faith Bible Church, it will look foolish and wasteful to the world. Why are you spending so much time with those people? Why are you spending so much time meeting practical needs? Why are you spending so much time on one-on-one discipleship? Why are you spending so much time praying? It's just going to look wasteful to the world. But what do we look forward to? We look to the Father's assessment and to His generosity and to His goodness and to His reward in the future for his people. Pursue greatness in the future kingdom by serving the church like the Son of Man. How do you do that? Well, you listen to Jesus' plan of service. You look, you plan for suffering, submitting to the Father's preparations, and you serve the church like the Son of Man. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for serving your people. It's beyond comprehension, love beyond degree. Oh, Lord, grip our hearts by it. Grip our hearts by it. And Lord, if there are any in this room who have not bowed the knee, who are in stubborn, rebellious, arrogant disobedience, I pray that you would humble them before they are humbled at the day of judgment. Lord, that they would bow the knee and surrender in repentance and faith and going public with that faith, O oh Lord God, before the church. Lord, for those of us who do know you, we thank you so much. We thank you for being the ransom for our sins so that we could draw near to you, so that we could draw near to a holy triune God for all eternity and a new heavens and a new earth. We thank you and we praise you. And we long for that. Lord, give us hearts of service. Give us hearts to serve one another. I thank you for all the people that do serve here at Faith Bible Church. Lord, day in and day out, week in and week out, laboring for the good of your people. Help us to labor out of joy, out of love for what you have done for us. Because you have served the church, help us too. And we ask these things and pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen.